This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Well, good morning. Uh, so nice to see uh, some of you here. And again, welcome to anybody who's new to our community. Uh, I'm glad that you all could join us this morning. So in preparing for this talk, I've been um, coming back to this sort of change of season. So in, in my, like, I think my last talk, or maybe two talks ago, uh, in the fall, the winter solstice, we talked about the winter season and kind of what that means in Chinese medicine and Taoism and Zen. And we've been having a, a really lovely spring here in Austin. Um, I don't remember getting so much rain in the last few years as we have this spring. You know, the temperatures have been cooler. So much feels alive outside. You know, there's so many varieties of plants and flowers and wildflowers. And I think to me, it's been especially striking this year after uh, the sort of great freeze that we had in Texas, where a lot of native plants seem to wilt and die. And there are still some that aren't coming back, you know, but I've been impressed by how many uh, plants that I assumed were dead a few months ago uh, have returned. So along with this transition of season um, and, and the kind of natural world and the ways that reminds us of some shifting cycle in our own lives, this wild experience that we've all gone through together of a worldwide pandemic, uh, lots of isolation, fear, sickness and death, that seems to be transitioning too. So it, it can be a touchy subject, so feel free to uh, just not respond if you don't like to, but um, I'm curious, like how many of us have gotten both uh, doses of the vaccine? And I'm wondering how that has, um, you know, changed your, your thinking or your approach to your life in the last few weeks, if anybody would like to, to share on that. Yeah, Catherine, I see. I do feel a little safer. I went to HEB for the first time and also Wheatsville in person. So I must, I must feel safer because I have two vaccines, two shots. Yeah, yeah wonderful, wonderful. That is a, a nice feeling and I've, I've experienced that some myself. Yeah, Pat, I see Pat's hand. Well, I, I definitely feel, I keep having a feeling that this is over, which is probably not completely true, but that, so lately I felt very free, but I really felt wonderful in January when I got my first vaccine. Uh, mm -hmm. That was just a wonderful day. I, I, and I noticed that at the uh, big Delco Center that everybody, there was a feeling of party in the air, you know, it was, that was a great day. Yeah. So you're 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 done with it. It's like it's already the, in the past. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, Sherry. I just saw Sherry's name. So um, when I was able to get the vaccine, which was rather early, in because uh, I was adamant about working the website 
and uh, and I got it. And I just remember walking into that huge uh, auditorium where they had all the tables, and I had this overwhelming feeling of gratitude and like I almost started to weep that mm -hmm. all these people came together to I mean think of the effort with the the scientific stuff way before the vaccine was you know developed uh the whole system of making um messenger RNA stuff whatever how they did it anyway it just like was this avalanche of emotion and uh and I'm like, Pat, man, let's party on. <laughs> yes. Let's go birding all together. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wanted to share one other thing, too, that I should have. I taught beginner's instruction this morning, and I'm all during the pandemic. We usually have zero, maybe one people, maybe two people, maybe three. Today, seven people came, and I think it's because they're, we're getting close to, to being back together again. Yeah, it's the end, the end of the pandemic and it's springtime. I think there's a kind of like new effort we make in our life or new decisions or new things to try. But that's great to hear that, that there's um, growing interest in the, the beginning meditation class. That's wonderful. Yeah, maybe one more. I saw Wendy stand up. Yeah, I was just um, noticing that, you know, for us, we just got our youngest child vaccinated yesterday for his first shot. And that to me, it felt like that was when I really was able to breathe a sigh of relief. So that tension of, um, you know, watching the people that you care about becoming, you know, feeling like there's less to worry about with each of them in that regard. And then kind of now all being to, able to do things together and, and step back out feels really good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, not everybody's had necessarily a chance to get the vaccine yet, even if they wanted it. Although I think we're getting close to that point where people that are willing do have an, an opening to do so. Um, but maybe they haven't gotten the second dose yet. Um, so we're all kind of on slightly different timelines and to, to sort of acknowledge that. But, but yeah, my own experience includes all of this. You know, I think we all have a, um, a variety of responses to changes in our lives. Like Sherry, I felt it, you know, uh, some awe at the, the kind of miracle of creating some little thing that kind of almost universally works. You know, one little discovery and potentially 7 billion people are helped by it or you know 7 billion beings some little drop in the ocean that kind of uh, has this amazing uh, profound effect but i have to say my own response was a little slow like i got both vaccines and i kind of just kept doing the same stuff i've been doing you know mostly living alone um, or avoiding other people for some weeks. And I used to, when I first moved to Austin, I used to go to Deep Eddy and swim, you know, a few times a week. And I loved it there, uh, especially in the summer. And I hadn't been in a year, year and a half. So somehow after a few weeks of having the, the second dose, it occurred to me, oh, I could go to, to a pool again and eventually did. 
but I've also been traveling quite a bit and seeing family and friends and there's all this kind of um, influx of, of energy and attention and care around being with other human beings that feels you know quite amazing I think so many people have reflected back to me how maybe unaware they were that uh, you know the presence of other people buoys their spirits or keeps them energized. And the sort of absence of that um, has been a struggle for, for so many of us, even you know, people who are maybe pr uh, more predicated to be, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Insular or introverted. I'm sorry, it took me a second to find the word introverted. I think even us, it's hard on to be so disconnected and, and separated from other people and, and attention, love and affection. So um, I guess I want to say, you know, as this, as we notice transitions in our life to make some kind of conscious digestion uh, of, of our experience, that allows us to kind of incorporate new lessons and things we learn, but also allows us to move forward. So I think there's been a lot of suffering in the last year and a half, a lot of people who aren't here anymore. And in a crisis, there's sometimes a way that we um, protect ourselves. We're just, you know, we go into a sort of survival mode. We just have to get through it kind of feeling. So I guess my encouragement is like, as you notice these shifts out of some crisis, to take a moment before, you know, totally leaping to the next thing to, um, to honor what's happened, to, to maybe feel the grief uh, of what's been experienced, if that hasn't been available, just in kind of trying to survive. So I think, you know, I mentioned in the talk at the solstice that um, winter time is the time in Chinese medicine or in the five element theory, uh, which is kind of stems out of Taoism. Winter is the time of turning our energy inward. You know, it's, it's very reflective, um, quiet, internal. And spring, you know, in the five elements, so, uh, Winter is, is also water or stillness and a black color. Spring, probably pretty understandingly, is this kind of um, almost opposite, like very outward energy. So it's represented by wood in the five elements, but it's sort of by wood, we mean kind of all natural growth. This expansive energy, this kind of going out to meet the world. And just like in, uh, you know, with winter, the predominant sort of difficult emotion in Chinese medicine is fear. And there's maybe something about when we turn inward, we kind of notice that fear. I've always found that interesting. But the predominant uh, afflictive emotion in spring is actually anger, maybe frustration. You know, anger has many colors and shades. But one uh, Chinese medicine practitioner put it as 
you know, in this moment of expansive energy of kind of going out of growth, that when we're hindered in that growth, blocked, you know, through our own, yeah, through our own energies or through the world, the sort of responses of the world, it's that kind of outward energy meeting some block that can kind of spur anger or frustration. But one thing I've always liked about Zen and particularly about Suzuki Roshi is that um, when we talk about growth of the natural world of plant life, you know, Suzuki Roshi points us to, you know, where the growth comes from, you know, it's springing from somewhere. So his attention goes to the soil. And I think this is a metaphor for, um, you know, the phenomenal, our life, you know, the existence of things springing from emptiness or potential. But in this very simple metaphor, it's just the ground and the nutrients and the compost and the digestion that happens uh, in, the, in the ground as things decay and die that creates these conditions for new life. So in a... Um, in a talk in, in Not Always So, um, Suzuki Roshi, it's titled Caring for the Soil. He says, most of us study Buddhism as though it was something that was already given to us. We think that what we should do is preserve Buddha's teaching, like putting food in the refrigerator. Then to study Buddhism, we take the food out of the refrigerator. Whenever you want it, it's already there. It's this object to interact with it. Whenever you want it, it's already there. Suzuki Roshi says, instead, Zen students should be interested in how to produce food from the field, from the garden. We put the emphasis on the ground. Later in this um, same, same lecture, he says, usually we are not interested in the nothingness of the ground or the emptiness out of which we all spring. Our tendency is to be interested in something that is growing in the garden, not in the bare soil itself. But if you want to have a good harvest, the most important thing is to make the soil rich and cultivate it well. The Buddha's teaching is not about the food itself, but about how it is grown and how we take care of it. Buddha was not interested in a special deity or something that was already there. He was interested in the ground from which various gardens will appear. For him, everything was holy. You know, I think this has been true in my own experience that um, it never really occurred to me until I read Suzuki Roshi that to be interested in the soil to be curious about where life comes from or goes to. And if we look at it as, as a metaphor for kind of form is emptiness and emptiness is form or this sort of um, mutuality of existence and 
we could call non-existence or potential or Buddha nature. When he says, you know, we care for the soil, how do we do that? You know, how do we care for emptiness? How do we care for the potential from which all life is possible? So one of my favorite Suzuki Roshi lectures is actually from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it's called Control. Um, and there's lots of wonderful stuff in this, but there's a particular quote or series of, of kind of his thinking that keeps coming back and kind of um, maybe haunting me in a nice way. Like I'm gonna offer his words, not in the sense that I know exactly what he's talking about, but that they affect me, they strike me, and they kind of compost with my life and my experience. And he's speaking about Buddha nature in particular, so about this soil that we can sort of turn our attention to somehow. He says, to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being moment after moment. So to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being moment after moment. You know, maybe when we come to practice or we think about enlightenment, this isn't necessarily what we want to hear. <laughs> that waking up involves the death of our small self over and over of our limited, limited view. He says, when we lose our balance, we die. But at the same time, we also develop ourselves, we grow. Whatever we see is changing, losing its balance. The reason everything looks beautiful is because it is out of balance. But its background is always in perfect harmony. So this, this is particularly the kind of um, sentence that works on me. The reason everything looks beautiful is because it's out of balance. But its background is always in perfect harmony. This is how everything exists in the realm of Buddha nature losing its balance against a background of perfect balance. So if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears to be in the form of suffering. So this disbalance, this unease, dis-ease, dukkha. So if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears to be in the form of suffering. But if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering is itself is how we live and how we extend our life. So in Zen, sometimes we emphasize the imbalance or the disorder of life. So that's the sort of the complete 
section that I, I would like to talk about a little bit um, or investigate or investigate with you. But especially this, uh, so if, if, if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, if we're caught in the small self and that's all we kind of notice, everything appears to be in the form of suffering. But if you understand the background of existence, this emptiness, this potentiality, this Buddha nature, you realize that suffering itself is how we live and how we extend our life. So I think sometimes this is a hard one to swallow. What does that mean? That the reality of suffering is somehow exactly as it should be. It is how we express our being. Maybe, you know, maybe that's from perspective of emptiness or oneness. And certainly from the perspective of my small self, suffering something um, that I'm trying to grapple with, that maybe even um, Buddhism holds up some appeal or ideal that suffering will be seen through or extinguished, you know, in the language of Buddha. But if we see suffering, if we're kind of aware of this small self, but we're also at the same time aware of this vast field that we uh, arise from, then some, somehow suffering is how we extend our life. have this weird sense of like both awe at that and doubt. I want to believe in some way that this all makes sense. <laughs> this weird existence, this weird human body uh, that somehow uh, arose in this moment in time, in this spot in the universe. And all of the trials that it feels like we go through I want that to make sense to me. And I think the part of me that's touched by what he's saying, you know, glimpses that, tastes that, but there's also this resistance, <laughs> this doubt and desire to argue with what he's saying. And I think that's part of our human nature as well, human condition. Um, so I wanted to sort of talk about spring in a way today, and I have some other, um, you know, maybe poems and other readings we can look at. But um, in the language of the Tao or in the language of Buddhism, we just flow with the reality we're given. You know? I can doubt it. You know, I can I can argue with reality, uh, with my you know the conditions of my life, but in a way it just is. And so yeah, we can have a myriad of responses to these changes that and cycles that happen in our life, um, including resistance, including like 
no, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to move out of the pandemic. I've just gotten used to like isolating and wearing masks. I'm not sure any of us are totally used to it, but there's a habitual way that the pandemic circumstances have become normal. Like it has become our life. So there's some almost resistance to, to going back, if we're going back or to going out into the world out of this sense of fear and isolation. So when it comes to poetry, one of my favorite Bah Humbug poets is um, Robert Frost. There's a kind of, I'm not willing to have this experience yet feeling that I get from this poem. It's called Spring Pools. So Robert Frost says, these pools that, th that though in forests still reflect the total sky almost without defect, and like the, the flowers beside them, chill and, and shiver. We'll like the flowers beside them soon be gone, and yet not out, of, not out by any brook or river, but up the roots to bring dark foliage on. The trees that have it in their pent up buds to darken nature and be summer woods. Let them think twice before they use their powers to blot out and drink up and sweep away these flowery, flowery waters and these flowery wa and these watery flowers from snow that melted only yesterday. So I'll, I'll read that one more time. He says, this is called spring pools. These pools that though in forests still reflect the total sky almost without defect. And like the flowers beside them chill and shiver, will like the flowers beside them soon be gone. And yet not out, of, out by any brook or river, but up the roots to bring dark foliage on. The trees that have it in their pent up buds to darken nature and be summer woods, let them, not, let them think twice before they use their powers to blot out and drink up and sweep away. These flowery waters and these watery flowers from snow that melted only yesterday. So I think, you know, again, in response to changing conditions and changing seasons, we have a whole variety of responses. And sometimes that response is, no, I'm not ready yet. I'm just learning to appreciate the pools of dark water from winter. So what is that hesitation? Is that hesitation suffering? But, you know, the suffering of Suzuki Roshi saying, suffering is how we extend our life, how we work with or make sense of this disbalanced being uh, that sprung from perfect balance of you know, reality. 
and particularly for me, like, why is that so beautiful? And Suzuki Roshi goes out of his way to say it's beautiful that we experience this disbalance and that there's this background of perfect balance. And there's some feeling of what he's saying, you know, that if perfect balance was just against a background of perfect balance, And maybe that's too plain. There's not a dynamic energy there somehow. So again, Suzuki Roshi says, to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being, moment after moment. When we lose our balance, we die. But at the same time, we also develop ourselves. We grow. Whatever we see is changing, losing its balance. The reason everything looks beautiful is because it is out of balance, but its background is always perfect harmony. This is how we exist in the realm of Buddha nature. How, this is how everything exists in the realm of Buddha nature, losing its balance against a background of perfect balance. So if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears to be in the form of suffering. But if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering itself is how we live it's, and how we extend our life. So in Zen, sometimes we emphasize the imbalance or disorder of life. So this past week, we um, here celebrated um, the memorial uh, of our founder, uh, Zenke Blanche Hartman, um, in a service in the yard here. And I wasn't able to make it. I was um, picking up family who are visiting uh, at the airport. Um, but when I got back, I saw a few people leaving this service um, and a few big smiles, you know, people that I had not seen on the property in a year and a half, you know, certainly more than a year. And this feeling that um, there are new possibilities for interaction and especially for Sangha, you know, I think it's been hard, you know, personally being isolated, but I think it's been hard on the Sangha in a way. And I'm so impressed with the, you know, the way people have continued to show up online um, to support each other uh, in practice. And I understand that for some people that didn't seem um, like the way they wanted to practice. It, it felt very foreign to me to sit Zazen in front of a screen or, though there have been nice parts, certainly, you know, the ability to have so many wonderful visiting teachers come to give talks to our community through Zoom uh, was a kind of revelation at this time. But yeah, I think, you know, in, in speaking with Mako and other practice leaders in the last few weeks, I think there's some desire for, for some new exploration of what it is that we are together. You know, what is, 
um, our Sangha life. Who are we now as a group? You know, having been in practice for some years and at different centers, um, it took me a long time to get used to the way people come and go. <laughs> I think one time uh, somebody who was giving Zazen instruction at, in Chapel Hill, I think it was in Chapel Hill, said something like, by their noticing, 95% um, of the people they gave Zazen instruction to never came back. So. So that's lots of people coming in the door and, and then just going out the door and yeah. Um, and then beyond that, there are people that come to practice and um, give a lot of their energy to practice and to the Sangha for some time, you know, and then their circumstances change or some internal feeling changes and, you know, they're not around or um, as much. And then living at Tassajara, you know, um, or San Francisco Zen Center in general, just so many people when you're in there in residence, so many people come in and out, you know, other residents, you know, people in the uh, wider Sangha, people from all over the world. And Suzuki Roshi's way that I really appreciate was, you know, whoever shows up is who we practice with. You know? It's kind of our job not to make a distinction about who we like or who we don't like, who we think we should be practicing with or, or not. That uh, whatever being kind of comes in front of us, we treat you know, as the Buddha or as our Dharma friend. Uh, I think there's a wonderful teaching in that. But for me, it was really hard to kind of really welcome people or, or kind of get to know people and care about them and then see them kind of move on. Um, and, you know, especially living at Tassajara, hundreds or thousands of people every year, you know, touch your life um, and then they're gone. Um, but there's a great teaching in that to um, a kind of felt teaching of receiving, you know, welcoming and then letting go. You know, everybody has their own life is on their own path and somehow in the midst of all of this change and this coming and going we we do something together uh, that we call practice and we have something together that we call a sangha so um, you know who are we now um, who do we want to be you know and how do we um, support what it is that we want to be with our own effort, our own presence. So anyway, I look forward to you know, um, you know, hearing more and discussing this more with with folks in the sangha. So maybe I'll uh, close with just a few uh, words from our founder, um, Sinke Blanche Hartman Roshi. I do miss her. Um, and her presence. And I'm really happy that she's considered the founder of Austin Zen Center. And, uh, and towards the end of her life, so I, I was living at City Center maybe the last three or four years that she was there or still alive. And um, 
she, st she, she would give Dharma talks a few times a year, but she kind of stopped um, writing elaborate, thoughtful talks and would just kind of come and share uh, her gratitude, you know, her encouragement towards loving kindness and kind of just left it at that. Like that is my teaching, you know, was kind of what she was saying. It's just passing on this spirit of kindness and attention. So I remember, you know, going to Tassajara when the practice periods would start, often many students would leave from city center and it was a slightly different schedule than the city center schedule. So I think like the residents would eat breakfast and then the people going to Tassajara would eat breakfast either before or after, I can't remember. Um, so it'd be a small group. And then we'd all file down to Lily Alley to get into the vans to drive to Tassajara and practice period after practice period, the one uh, teacher or um, kind of permanent resident of, of city center who would be there every time to say goodbye and to wish us well was Blanche. And she took it as a, you know, it wasn't just her sort of friendly well-wishing and kind of like have fun at camp kind of, she had this, she maintained this presence through the whole time that she was watching us leave, which would end with her just sort of bowing um, as the vans pulled off. She took it very seriously, like, you all are important to me and I wish you well. So this is a, a talk or a, a piece of, from Seeds for a Boundless Life that's titled, How Amazing the World Is. So Blanche says, in, in her poem, When Death Comes, Mary Oliver has a few lines that say, when it is over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. She says, this is beginner's mind. Quote, I'm, I've been a bride married to amazement. Unquote. Just how amazing the world is. How amazing our life is. How amazing that the sun comes up in the morning or that the wisteria blooms in spring. Quote, a bride married to amazement, the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. Unquote. Can you live your life with that kind of wholeheartedness, with that kind of thoroughness? This is the beginner's mind that Suzuki Roshi is pointing to is encouraging us to cultivate. He's encouraging us to see where we are stuck with fixed views and see if we can, as Kosho Uchiyama Roshi says, open the hand of thought and let the fixed views go. This is our effort. This is our work. Just to be here, ready to meet whatever is next without expectation or prejudice or preconceptions. Just, what is this? What is this I wonder? So please cultivate your beginner's mind. Please willing, be willing not to be an expert. Be willing not to know. Not knowing is nearest. 
not knowing is most intimate. Well, thank you um, for your kind attention. I think we'll open it up to um, any questions or thoughts or impressions you want to share. Or we could just be quiet together. Oh yes, Sean, I see your hand is up. Yeah, thank you so much for the talk. I uh, I got stuck on the one you talked about with the uh, being out of balance and the life backdrop constant. I still don't understand the constant thing yet, but uh, I was wondering uh, if, uh, these are just my thoughts on it, but if like maybe the connotations of the words used or what make it harder to like uh, get along with or what made it harder for me to accept. But I was thinking like, instead of out of balance, thinking of the words like movement or change made more sense to me, I guess, because I guess I have a negative connotation with out of balance uh and then same with like suffering instead of because that to me also has a negative connotation just like feeling or experiencing that change uh because the like you said i didn't really fully understand the small person dying either but it definitely seems interesting and to me it seems like uh the small person dying is kind of uh i wrote it down oh the it was something like when we lose our balance we die uh, and it was something like kind of for me, I see that as like if the small person dies and we die when we lose our balance, it's kind of like uh, I very much like the go with the flow attitude. So it's kind of like when we die, we lose our balance, which is kind of going with the change in the movement of things. So those are just some of my thoughts on it. I was curious if that makes any sense to you or anyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would. Um... I think that's a good way to practice with Dharma teachings is to um, is to play with words and substitute words that maybe make sense to you and see if it's um, how it changes your impression of what's being said. So I appreciate that kind of form of study. I think that's that's helpful. To, to especially if we get hung up on a certain word because of our own conditioning and our own connotations with that word you know to play with well what else could i say you know use here um, and it's tricky because we don't always know the intention of the the speaker you know um and we, it could just be ways that we're affirming the self like well this is a this is the way you know the word i like or because that concept scares me i'll put one that doesn't but I think that's still part of practicing and part of digesting what it is that he's saying, you know, or what the teachers are telling us to encourage our practice. And that's the last thing I would say, which is that, you know, these teachings are always uh, kind of meant to be an encouragement. Um, and uh, I've had many teachers say that, you know, to read Dharma, um, should inspire your practice. And if it doesn't, then don't worry about reading Dharma, you know, just keep sitting. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yeah, Pat. Well, I, I had a thought following up on, on what Sean said. Um, uh, I think it's Katagiri Roshi. I was just reading it this week, I think. And he, he talks about that being out of balance. He uses the words, everything's always falling apart. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, I, I don't, it, it is hard to see that. Um, but I do know that every time I think that things are okay, everything's in place now. It's all, it's all settled. Every time I think that way, I get busted for it somehow. And every time I hear people, other people talk that way, there's something in me that just, that, that just sounds false. And so, um, yeah, I guess it's true. <laughs> everything's always falling apart or everything's always out of balance. And I like what you said about how everything being out of balance, uh, um, th that if, if everything were in balance and was portrayed, I don't know how you said it, something about against the backdrop of everything being in balance, uh, that's kind of meaningless. And uh, is that kind of what you said? Uh, yeah, there's, kind of, there's no dynamic activity there in a way. And that's the vitality yeah, of, yeah. of our life. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Thank, thank you for your talk. Yeah. Thank you, Pat. And I, I would just add to what you just said, you know, everything is changing or falling out of balance or kind of seems like it's going awry. I mean, of course, there are moments where we think, oh, everything's going great, you know. Um, but like you, I, I have enough experience to know that's often like right, that, that thought is like right before I make a big mistake or something changes, you know. Um, I remember doing a, a drum, uh, the, the evening drum at Tassajara one time. Um, and it's this sort of, you know, gentle drumming of this big drum, standing drum that's outside of the zendo. Um, and it's a certain rhythm and it's kind of quiet, has a kind of eerie feeling or something if you're sitting in the zendo. And I, I did the, I, you know, was fairly new at it and I had remembered the pattern and I, you know, the pattern felt great. You know, the timing felt really, you know, kind of, you know, evocative or something. And I was like, wow, this is going great. And then there's the little, the, the, the bell for the time drum. Um, and the whole thing went great, just sounded beautiful to me. And then I went and I thought, you know, oh, they must be loving this too. <laughs> and I went and put the hammer that you strike the bell with in its little perch between these two pegs on the drum. And I missed. And the, the little wooden hammer, like, fell to the ground, bounced up, hit the leg, you know, it was, it was like hitting the wall. It was like this five seconds of like, you know, to me, it sounded like a cacophony, like this huge sort of disruption in the soundscape. Um, and looking back, I thought like, oh, that moment where I thought it was just so beautiful and so perfect was almost sort of like predicating me dropping it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Rich, I'm sorry, I, I missed you there. I, I just saw your hand was up. Thank you for that wonderful talk. You know, I guess I was going back to the beginning where you asked people what this is like right now for them. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about was the idea of interdependence. You know, when we first got the first, the quarantine started, we all did that. We were all sort of in it together in the beginning. We were all like, we all have to get masked. And now we're all like, we all have to get vaccinated so we can be back together again. It was like this, this really intense sense of interdependence. Like if we don't all do this, we're all, you know, the, the virus, the virus sort of reminded, reminded me of like, and maybe a lot of other people of inter, our interdependence, right? 
and just how, and I, I guess that to me, and somehow that that implies emptiness. This 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 sense of like we're all connected, and that um, this, and so maybe to say to die to the small self is to to accept interdependence and our interconnectedness, and that um, you know there's this other theme that we I think we've been talking about this for years actually, which is the question of is it safe to be together in the current conditions, right? And in the past, it was something else. It was some other topic, but now it's like COVID, right? And, but this, the question of, are the conditions okay is still present for a lot of people. Like when I heard the comments earlier, it was like, oh, it's safe to go birding or it's safe to, for our kids to go out or whatever, it's safe. Um, this question of safety, is it safe in the current conditions? And I think it's it's still challenging for a lot of people to show up in the current conditions, whether it's because of COVID or it's something else. You know, and I, I don't know. I think it's worth investigating that question of why is it safe for some people to show up and some people not to show up? Why do they feel that way? I, you know, um, but I think it's great to explore that. I don't know. That's what it came up for me from your talk, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I actually was thinking of this question in some of these readings um, and in particularly this when Suzuki Roshi says somehow that suffering is our life is how we express our Buddha nature in a way I don't know if I'm taking it further than he he took it but um, to me in that there's a there's an implicit like um, it is okay like there is safety in some vast sense it's okay that we are beings that suffer, you know? And that's not always, you know, a complete bomb to our small self, you know? But it does sort of point us toward the way that we're actually part of some huge system, you know, that has us, you know, has us, that we can't ever fall out of. There's no way we can't be connected right. to all beings, you know? Yeah. And that's the deepest sense of safety. But I think a lot of our day-to-day -day practice is, was, is, is in, um, Leslie James at Tassahara teaches about this all the time, you know, like, is it okay to be me? You know, is it okay in this moment? So part of this sense of safety is an internal practice, like, coming to terms with the ways we resist the world and we project a not okayness on it. Um, and then there are certainly ways we practice with the conditions of other people and their judgments and the circumstances of our life that feel unsafe. But I think, you know, this, this question of safety and navigating that is a big part of practice. And I think a, a part of what Suzuki Roshi was talking about as well. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, Bruce. Thank you, Tim. Um, I had a thought on the question of things always being out of balance, which is that I was listening to a Radiolab episode this past week that was all about animals who, uh, like a main focus of all their activity day to day is looking for other animals to basically steal their body heat from. 
you know, like, like they can't generate or maintain enough of their own. And so this snake, for example, just burrows deep into this den and the way they're describing it, you think that it's, it's like preying on, it's like going to feed. No, it just snuggles up next to this other animal, this other species and just wraps itself around. It's like, oh, you know, gets itself all warm again. And the point that, that um, one of the people made at some point in the episode was, and wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to, if, if this wasn't a thing, like what if we just all had the right amount of body heat and we didn't have to worry about, you know, someone taking it or having to get it. And the other person said, well, yeah, but there's a, there's a, there's a term for that. And that's like the end of all life. You know, like that is not the way life, like there is no way to have life if there's, if there isn't that energy, literal energy flowing back and forth. And so we, it's, it's really kind of ironic to me or, or just amusing maybe that we can hold up this idea of balance as an ideal, but when it comes to like everyday concrete life, like that's kind of the opposite of, of actual life. So um, just thought that was interesting, this, this kind of natural application. And then I, one other thing is um, that idea of paying attention to the soil. I found very interesting as well, because to me that that touches on this idea of not having a gaining idea or not making specific things happen with our practice. Like I'm doing, I'm doing this practice so that this, 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 and this will happen. You know, it's, it's, it's more like we're tending to the soil and we don't know what's going to grow, but we do have some idea based on our experience and the experience of everyone that's gone before us we have some idea of what's healthier and what's less healthy for the soil and what's better and what's maybe not as good for growth. And so I think that I don't need to know what seeds are already in the ground, but I, but I, I maybe can improve over time, cultivate in a literal and metaphorical sense, like, like my ability to cooperate with the natural cycles of growth rather than taking this mentality of that I'm planting it and I'm growing it and I'm harvesting it and I, I, I am going to make this happen. You know, you just kind of pay attention and go, Oh, that doesn't work so well. Oh, that works. All right. Maybe I'll try that. So anyway, thank you for, for, for planting those seeds and, yeah. and, and getting the thoughts going. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate those comments. Um, I guess I see Jess and then Choro. Hello. Hello. I feel so fortunate to be sitting outside for this Dharma talk. I think this is the first Dharma talk of my entire life that I've been outside and uh -huh. couldn't have picked a better one. Um, so through the whole talk, I was really reminded of this sort of concept, um, which I first heard in French that I kind of hold when I make my art, which is a uh, le frisson de la vie, or the quiver of life. Mm. And um, the talk just really brought about this same feeling. Um, and like in feeling into that, what I've really noticed through like the lens of art, which is where I spend a lot of my time, is it's the imperfections that bring it to life, like that kind of give it that texture and if you're going for this like ideal form, somehow it 
reads as um, like dead or without movement. And it's that like back and forth between like perfection, imperfection, balance, imbalance, like that almost brings this, this quality that people respond to. Um, and then I was also thinking while you were talking about balance, which is something that I always, uh, that I like to think about a lot and like harmony is that, um, you know, balance and perfection only exist because imbalance exists, right? So if there was no imbalance, the concept of balance wouldn't even be possible. So it's kind of this, uh, this lovely seesaw that we're kind of constantly navigating. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And, and in fact, like that speaks to me of the, the sort of breadth of our view. Like um, if we see the whole seesaw and we see, you know, imperfection and perfection in, in a kind of relationship or dynamic, that was that's sort of what maybe Suzuki Roshi is calling beautiful. But more often we're kind of caught by like, oh, I love perfection. Oh, I hate imperfection. You know, mm -hmm. on the seesaw ourselves, like, oh, good perfection. Oh, imperfection. You know, this sort of up and down. But actually, if we step back and we say that we, these two things are necessary for each other and for life, there's a different feeling that we have. Yeah. Um, and I love the quiver of life. Uh, it's a, well, I'll, I'll never remember the French, but. Um, I was, um, it reminds me of, of Pema Chodron when she mm -hmm. talks about bodhicitta, that, um, that actually the sort of, the way we notice bodhicitta is a kind of rawness, a kind mm -hmm. of slight insecurity. You know, in my, in my conception of my life, you know, in this desire for perfection is that I'm supposed to be confident and uh, assured in what I'm doing, you know. Um, and that's kind of dead, like you're saying, you know, Pema Chodron saying, actually, there has to be kind of a quiver to really be connected to the dynamism of life. So, yeah, thank you for that reminder and for bringing us all outdoors. <laughs> yes, Choro. Thank you, Tim. Uh, that quote from Suzuki Roshi is one of my two favorite quotes from Suzuki Roshi. I think, I think in my very first Dharma talk here, I might've used it because oh. the pandemic had just hit and we were all losing our balance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Same time, it was perfect. Everything was perfect. So <laughs> I think uh, if I remember what you said, yeah, I'm grateful that you reread a couple of passages so I could remember some of the details um, instead of just pulling out the things that initially immediately appeared to me right. and appealed to me. And I think one of them, um, Suzuki Roshi said, and, and you emphasized the last time you read it was the appearance of suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to remember that, that, that we as small beings, when we lose touch with that perfect background or because of impermanence and this threatens us, it threatens our sense of small self, we experience existence. We experience our becoming and existing and and constantly changing and moving as something that's suffering. But, you know, as, as many teachers have said, and we all have heard this, you know, nirvana and samsara are not separate. They're two sides, you know, 
So I think that's important when I feel like, oh God, this is such suffering <laughs> to remember everything's unfolding the way it should. It may not be how I want it to be. The other thing I guess I wanted to just express, I, I also really appreciate you always bring forward the, you know, the, the, the natural and the Taoist perspective. And um, one of the most terrifying things to me, the causes of my own suffering at this time of climate crisis is uh, losing the natural, losing the seasons. I think I, I read a, or saw, you know, like the lead on, a, on a, an article a while back about how we may not have spring anymore. Real, the spring that we that you were talking about, this bursting forth out of the silence and stillness of winter. You know, we might not really have fall anymore. And this deep grief took a hold of me, you know, uh, and it goes along with losing, you know, species, thousands of species and the suffering of people, our fellow humans, as they flee climate change, as they suffer from, you know, and yet it's all perfect. <laughs> So I think, how do we, you know, this is a big challenge for me. How do we immerse ourselves in these teachings, these traditional teachings and, you know, that rely on the natural world when the natural world is no longer what we think of as, you know, that order, <laughs> what we think of, I think, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but the, the, what we think of as that harmonious background is the natural world. And then the natural world seems also not to be that background that we think is harmonious. Mm -hmm. Somehow it all makes sense, like you said. <laughs> anyway, so you don't have to answer, you don't have to solve this conundrum. I just wanted to bring it forward because it, to me, it's a big, um, I turn away from it. It's so big and it's so scary and it's so, it's so painful. I yeah. often just don't read those things. I see the headlines and I think, I know this is happening. Mm -hmm. I don't need to immerse myself in it because it will, it'll overwhelm me. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And, uh, you know, the other word that kept striking me in that passage is beautiful, too. Like, it's not only, you know, just this is the way the world is. Like, I have to accept suffering, you know, or and I appreciate your distinction, the appearance of suffering, meaning, you know, maybe that's already a return to the small self, the fact that I encounter life as suffering. But how is that beautiful? You know, that's the one that kind of just sort of gnaws at me. <laughs> and yet I also kind of resonate with, you know, like this perfection background like, you know, there is some feeling or deep taste of like, it really is all okay. Even the distinct extinction of species or the loss of this planet, you know, um, and at the very deepest level is okay. But, but yeah, it's important to remember we can't live there, you know, in this place of like, oh, receiving it all is okay. Like, actually we, we are beings of this world. We were formed out of this planet in a way. So yeah, and, and that itself is this conundrum, you know, how much can I be okay with it and how much do I need to get involved and do something, you know? Anyway, thank you for your, your um, wonderful thoughts. Yeah, maybe one more, David. 
So first, I just want to thank Tim, you, and also the Sangha for this incredibly rich conversation. I'm, I'm thrilled <laughs> by this conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and a couple of the thoughts uh, that struck me during your, your talk and then also during this conversation is um, I, I appreciate the reminder I think it's especially poignant for me to uh, remind myself to let my small self die over and over. Um, I think that's a real area of focus for me that will um, be very rich. I also love the, the, just the metaphor of the soil and how this moment, this last uh, hour and 20 minutes is such a great example of you cultivated some soil for us and look what's grown here in, in an hour and 20 minutes. Um, so exciting to me, um, this conversation and, and, and this shared experience that we're having. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for that. <clears throat> um, the other thing that I was thinking about is that <clears throat> thinking so much about the, the, the condition of suffering, the perfectness of suffering, which is some of the things we're talking about, um, which, yeah, just in Charles' example, really hit home about that challenge of accepting that level of suffering as perfect. Um, uh, in a, uh, and I was thinking, and here, here, let me let me expose how I can work on my small mind and how I can let it die over and over again. As a parent, I'm really challenged by navigating the suffering of my two teens during the pandemic. Um, and all I'm trying to do is create balance and um, lack of suffering for them. And this, this is perhaps one area where I can let my small self die over and over again. And, and yeah, Wendy, I see you. <laughs> and also my kids are getting vaccinated on Monday. So, um, so that's something, I guess. But boy, this has been hard on kids and um, hard on everyone but uh, also really hard on kids. Um, uh, so thank you for letting me share that. And, and Tim, a, a thought I have for you or really for anyone is um, the Suzuki Roshi quote talks about the, the background of emptiness. So um, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's essentially things seems out of balance unless you see the background of emptiness. And um, that definitely struck home for me in the Monday night uh, book group with Rich and, 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 and our, our little cohort there. We've been talking a lot about Prajna Paramita. We've been talking a lot about emptiness, um, which has inspired me to dig into that idea a little bit. Um, and I feel like in the last couple of weeks through that work, I've, uh, I would say I've somehow approached the gate of emptiness and maybe... Um, Maybe I've approached the gate for brief moments, <laughs> both in zazen and in, in, in daily life. Um, but the thing I'm really curious about is, is for you or maybe others is, is how do you experience the background of emptiness? How do I, or, or like, how does everybody? <laughs> I, I think it's a personal question ultimately. So, cause certainly there's not one way to do it. Yeah. 
you know, when we're talking about emptiness, it's helpful to, to um, define our terms in some way. So, uh, you know, my first teacher was very clear about defining emptiness as, you know, that everything is changing and that everything is causing everything else. So it's, it's really about interconnection. It's not about voidness or space or something. It's really about cause and effect in some way and potentiality. But in terms of the experience of emptiness, I think it, it does feel like a kind of um, a broader perspective. You know, I love Suzuki Roshi's small mind, big mind kind of dynamic description and find it really helpful to remember that small mind is part of big mind. You know, it's not like there's big mind over here and there's small mind and our small mind has to die so that we can enter big mind, you know that actually small mind is just a, a limited perspective of the totality of cause and effect. So, you know, what that feels like to me, I mean, this is, we're talking about non-duality, so I can't really, you know, um, what that feels like to me is a broader perspective, you know, a feeling that I'm in, you know, and I, and I love the Suzuki Roshi description of the swinging door you know, that there's this sort of limitless world inside as we breathe in and this limitless world outside as we breathe out. And all that exists is, is this sort of door in between. And again, to me, that speaks of some location. It's not like our being, you know, our experience of big mind is, you know, just space or something. You know, like there's still a swinging door. So there's still some feeling of this body and mind, but it's like included in a, in a kind of vast body and mind. And then, you know, maybe the experience of that sometimes is sitting in Zazen and hearing sounds, you know, like my kind of, the awareness of my auditory field expanding um, and that feeling of the, the sounds that I hear around me are actually sort of emanating from me or through me. It's not like me and that sound, but that sound is part of me. So maybe I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else wants to try and describe experience of emptiness <laughs> I, uh, I heard a, a good a teacher oh, say, oh am, I, am i interrupting anybody no 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 go ahead I, I just i like this uh this teacher said that emptiness is the uh, i don't know expression of the fact that at any moment anything can happen and the cultivation of, of emptiness is like a kind of willingness to be there as things change and happen, you know, to, to not get caught on this fixed view of the way we want it to be or it has to be. But anyway, I, I appreciated Churro's head nod because the question itself is like fool's gold in, in, in religious life or in Zen to try and describe the experience of non-duality. <laughs> Philip McCurty was silent when he was asked that question.
All right, thank you all so much for being here today. It's wonderful to spend this time and hear all of your thoughts. And, uh, you know, I look forward to coming together again as a Sangha, you know, in incremental ways, but um, this, this potential or this possibility of practicing together uh, is exciting. I hope to see you here at some point. Yeah, thank you.